And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got a full program for you today. We're going to go and hear from the... uh, Renegade activists about AUKUS. We're going to uh, hear from Kevin. He's back. He's got This Is The Week That Was. And uh, Don Sutherland, who uh, put up his hand last week to talk about freedom. And, of course, freedom is a very important issue uh, at the moment because we've got all these weird and wonderful things happening. And, uh, yes, this is despite COVID or because of COVID. Uh, but there's uh, far more uh, uh, ripples uh, are concerning it. So, for example, uh, Aaron from the uh, Tamil Refugee Council has um, uh, um, alerted everyone that the government has started deporting refugees again. This was last week. Four uh, Tamils were returned to danger in Sri Lanka. One man was taken from a Sydney hospital and placed on a plane after suffering a heart attack. And Aaron's right, it's unconscionable. They're calling on uh, people to uh, try and uh, take action or to take action. The Tamil Refugee Council has called an online rally for 6pm Saturday the 2nd of October, that's today, uh, to draw attention to and to protest against last week's deportations. Um, They say we will also be launching a new campaign called Don't Deport to Danger. This campaign will not focus on only on Tamils but all refugees at risk in Australia and they say we need to put a stop to forced removals we need temporary protection visas to be able to be made permanent protection visas uh, so go to the Tamil Refugee Council uh, website and uh, find out more about uh, what's going on there 6pm Saturday that's today um, also you would have noticed that uh, uh, Josh Frydenberg on Thursday, I think it was, actually stood up. And if you're unaware, he is the treasurer. He was uh, given prime time to tell us all that uh, the co- the economy is going beautifully because we're coming out of lockdown, and that there's plenty of employment. However, this and you and because you're uh, alert political observers, you will already know that whenever somebody like the uh, Morrison or Josh Frydenberg stands up to say something publicly like this. This is because something has happened. Well, in actual fact, the ABS revealed that uh, th- there's been a 36,000 drop in the number of job vacancies available down to 334,000 last month. And so that's a, a decline in the quarter, the biggest decline in the quarter both at 16% in New South Wales and South Australia. 
Now, um, accommodation and food services, jobs, vacancies fell 28%, arts and recreation decreased by 27%, and that unemployment has actually hit 9.7%. That's effective unemployment. Now, that came out at the same time as Joss Frydenberg wanted to tell us that everything was rosy, rosy, rosy. And, of course, this is because they're in election mode. Um, the Liberal National Party, we're all in COVID land, but they're in election mode because, of course, they're all about themselves. Now, this is at the same time as uh, the federal government is pushing to, um, well, has tied uh, the... uh, disaster payment, which was inadequate, more inadequate than uh, the funding that was put out last the year before um, for workers, uh, but this uh, because fewer people are able to actually access these disaster payments. Anyway, they've tied it to 80% uh, vaccination rates, which is a crock to tie public health to uh, payments. But of course, what that means is that they're forcing Australians into coming out of lockdown despite the danger. Uh, This is their policy and it's their political process of making it happen. And there are two things going on here, of course. There is this removal of lockdown to despite the danger, but also it leaves the states holding the baby. And, of course, that's another sign that uh, the Liberal National Party federally is uh, in election mode. Now, what does the cutting of the disaster payment of $750 per week means for workers? It will be to force them to live on um, and wait for weeks to receive unemployment payment from Centrelink. And that, of course, is set at uh, $350 a week. But according to the federal government, everything's fine, the economy's fine, and there's lots of jobs out there. All right, so... Um, we then move on to something even more um, abysmal, which is uh, the rise and rise of fake unions. Apparently, you uh, have been listening to uh, what happened down outside the CFMEU office with these anti-vaxxers and uh, the proselytising on uh, work sites around anti-vaxxing. Now, interestingly enough, I was listening to an essential polls uh, report the other day, and apparently in Australia, there is about 8% of the population, the entire population, who are anti-vax. Now, there will be reasons for why they're anti-vaccination, but 8% out of the entire population leads one to wonder what's really going on in this uh, hectic world. Now, it's been pointed out by CAF, the uh, campaign against uh, racism, fascism, that there is a right-wing core in this, but also there's something else that's happening. Uh, there is a group coming emanating out of Queensland and New South Wales now that are actually creating fake unions. Now, uh, they're calling themselves things like, um, they're called uh, Red Union, and they've been unveiling the Nurses Professional Association of Australia, Teachers Professional Association of Australia, Professional Drivers Association of Australia, Australian Medical Professions Society, and uh, they're going to be launching a police association apparently as well. Now this is uh, because and the and their biggest message at the moment is anti-vaccinations. This is a haven for all those professionals who 
and workers who are anti-vax. And uh, lo and behold, it's been discovered that uh, behind this is the LMP, the toxic LMP members who uh, win at any cost. Uh, these people are... I mean, it's very interesting because it, it it has parallels to the development of the of One Nation. If you go back in uh, dim time and you remember, One Nation was actually developed by as by Liberal Party people who saw it as a campaign a potential to split uh, uh, Labor vote the Labor vote. With uh, by raising the raising the ire of the right wing belly of the the labour movement, but in actual fact, it backfired on them, and they found out that there was this uh, deep right wing heart in within the Liberal National Party voting sector, and so they then turned their uh, they st- attacked One Nation, and you'll remember that Pauline Hanson was uh, uh, basically put in jail for corruption at one point. Point, but and then escaped and uh, then rose from the ashes and developed one nation uh, on its own, right? So this was uh, something that backfired on the Liberal Party. So now they've obviously come up with something else which they believe will divide the uh, Labor vote. Um, it's it's really a real pox on the uh, Liberal National Party and you should actually, if you have any leanings towards that, and I'm assuming that if you're listening to this program you don't, but you should create conversations around it. They are actually so in love with themselves and winning the next election that they are prepared to undermine uh, working people and send them into unsafe conditions. Uh, Sally McManus has put out a statement in regards to this. The Australian Union movement is fighting to keep working people safe and to stop misinformation which will cost working people their health and their lives. Well, yeah, they are. And uh, there you go. That is what's really happening in regards to the um, uh, shamoz that's going on at the moment. The LMP government nationally is so in love with itself that it requires the whole of Australia to fall at their knees to vote for them in great confusion. Don't be fooled. Um, at the same time as this is happening, you might on in the real world, FedEx workers have followed Star Trek uh, workers from last week into uh, strike action, saying no to outsourcing at low rates and low conditions. There's this push for this uh, disgusting Amazon-style, um, uh, uh, you know, getting people in their private cars to come and do all this work that needs to be, um, uh, you know, it's it's unsafe work, really, basically, if you allow this kind of rot to enter into it and people are unable to actually have secure jobs. So anyway, they've, they've gone out and also Patrick's on the waterfront, uh, workers at Patrick's and Cube, are, uh, there's an ongoing um, a protected action going on in that area. And uh, they're all bleating. These these companies that are making a fortune during COVID uh, are now bleating that uh, oh Johnny won't get his bike for Christmas. So there you go. And um, but of course that uh, balanced against uh, 
a secure work and uh, proper balanced family work time. Uh, you should uh, see it in the big picture. And uh, also the Switzer dispute, which is uh, Switzer is uh, the tugs and um, uh, Mertz, which is the biggest, lo- uh, it's Danish company and it's the biggest logistic company in the world. Uh, they also own Spitzer. They are uh, trying to uh, squeeze more juice out of the lemon, uh, unnecessary stuff, and there is ongoing. Um, they will be experiencing some uh, protected action over the next few weeks. We're going to uh, follow this uh, um, disputes and real-world stuff by uh, hopefully having a chat with Dave Hauser from the New South Wales RBTU, the Rail, Tram and Bus Unions, who are also in the middle of an EBA negotiation, which is turning a little bit uh, um, rancid in um, in the middle of COVID. And uh, we will hear a few messages before we have a chat with Dave. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activist on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. Health for Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero-COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Dave Hauser on the line. G'day Dave, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Good, just woken up. Sorry to, to uh, do that to you. Yeah, the joys of a shift worker. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And um, uh, the RBTU in New South Wales is actually in the process of uh, trying to uh, squeeze a proper EBA from the New South Wales government, aren't they? That's correct, yeah. It's been a long, uh, protracted sort of process since uh, May the 1st. Our last agreement expo- uh, expired and we've had eight meetings so far but virtually nothing's been achieved and we don't even know what their full plan is for the enterprise agreement. So it makes it very frustrating and um, the fact that the Fair Work Commission granted us a protected action ballot so quickly uh, because of the lack of uh, uh, good faith bargaining on the behalf of Sydney trains and New South Wales trains, the two entities that are owned by the government. It's really interesting because, of course, we're in the middle of you and us. We're 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 in the middle of COVID, right? And um, all of the people who are working on the trains, the pub, and uh, the buses are really frontline workers, aren't they? But there's very little good faith, despite fronting up at these press conferences saying we're all in it together, right? 
Yeah, well, it's it's amazing that they can say stand there and say that when they're offering 0.3%. And this is not just railway workers. This is nurses, doctors, fire um, crews, ambulance crews. Uh, there seems to be just a standard static pattern across all government employees, which is disgraceful considering most of them are working through the pandemic to keep the state going. Yeah, yeah. And what, part of what you're uh, doing is uh, calling for proper cleaning of the facilities, right? Yeah, there's, there's contractors there at the moment that are doing uh, cleaning, like uh, for the, the train crew cabins and whatnot, but we don't believe it's it's enough and we want permanent people to be doing the job and provided with the proper equipment. Like We've had several incidences where cleaning has been done with... Um, products that are not suitable. Uh, we, all, we all know that uh, COVID is an easily transmissible disease uh, and especially the Delta strain now is even worse. So it's been an 18-month campaign to get the right gear to do the right cleaning, but that's still falling over. Um, and it's a constant battle with the management. Uh, the cleaning crews are always arguing for better gear and, and better cleaning products that are up to standard that are actually going to kill the virus off. And that's, that's, that's a constant battle for the cleaning crews all, all the time. The, um, there is a very anti-worker uh, approach, isn't there, in this? Yes. It, they put out quite a few emails. I mean, if, if you go outside the enterprise agreement, we've also got a new train coming and they're, they're, they're telling us how it's the safest train and all that sort of stuff. But we, don't, we just don't believe them. And that's the, the bottom line here. They put out a lot of propaganda. It doesn't actually marry up. Like, we... we they, we got an email yesterday saying our enterprise agreement is vital for the future and all this sort of stuff, but they they don't even turn up to negotiations. It's amazing how they can say this. And, and I think if you look at the way the, the government's behaving, it trickles down into the management of New South Wales and especially uh, transport for New South Wales. Is there, there's a... Um, I mean, I know that you're part of the Guards Division, but there's always been this very... Uh, unpleasant uh, backdrop to what's going on in the New South Wales uh, train uh, area, for, for, uh, transport, public transport area, which is that they are in love with the idea of getting rid of workers altogether, as in uh, driverless trains. Is that something that's a, a sort of part of the, a, a backdrop to their lack of interest in their workers? I'd say so. Andrew Constance, the transport minister, has been quite open a couple of years ago. He said, you know, that in 15 years' time he wouldn't have to deal with any unions, you know. So they're obviously looking at automation down the track. You know, they've already started with the, the metro. They've got a short metro in Sydney that runs from the northwest into Chatswood at the moment, but it's planned to go under the harbour and over onto the what is now currently the Bankstown line. They're going to convert that. So Bankstown's quite a densely populated area on that, on that line and currently gets a train service during the peak of every four minutes. And that's a double-decker train which carries a lot, lot more capacity than in an eight-car set. It carries a lot more capacity than a metro that's a six-car set but only single deck. But they're, going to, they're going to destroy the Bankstown line with, with metros that are unmanned. So that's their, their end game, I think, at the end of it all. So, so, um, they're in, so, well, we saw the Gladys Berejiklian. Now, when do they call her Gladys? 
Um, actually, um, uh, stepped down yesterday, and uh, interestingly enough, the New South Wales, uh, the former New South Wales um, Auditor General, was interviewed, and he said, and she should have resigned earlier <laughs> over these allegations. Um, so there's actually uh, a, quite a uh, self-involved um, aspect to this government, isn't there? There is, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, if you, I've noticed when I've dealt with managers that they talk similar sort of syntax to the government. So when Gladys Berejiklian comes out and talks about, you know, integrity and all this sort of stuff, they're buzzwords. And what what the management doing? That they're looking at Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian and going, well, they can get away with it, so can we, you know. And we sit in meetings and we just roll our eyes at the rubbish that gets spilled out about how they care about us. But the reality is they're constantly, and I believe this is across a lot of government departments, there's a massive amount of bullying. And I'm constantly encouraging members to stand up and write emails of complaint virtually every day now. And I I know that's the same in a lot of other departments because a friend of mine's wife is a paramedic and she's told me that there's bullying in the ambulance service and I know two people who work at New South Wales Health that have the same thing. You know, so it's a, it's a it's an ideological position to bully down through the public service and it's created a a culture of fear and a climate of um, uncertainty because you don't know whether you're gonna have your job if you get attacked. So, you know, Gladys going's a good step in the right direction, but I mean basically we have to change the government because they're the ones setting the scene for everything. So what? What? Are the, tell me. Tell me about the protected action. What's happening? I, I, well, I mean, I, before you go on, I, I love the idea that you bl- blew the train horns uh, whistles <laughs> because it had been banned five years ago. Yeah, it's um, it's a controversial thing. Um, but the, the union did the right thing by putting up like virtually twenty five different ways to take industrial action, and not just strikes. But the, they started a campaign with a calendar. A month ago, on how how to, what they're going to do every day. What's you know what, what, mostly people wearing their um, union gear at the moment, which is driving the managers insane. They hate it <laughs> because it's very symbolic, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you know the, some managers have come down and said, "Oh, can you please not wear union gear?" They're very careful not to say that you can't, but they have tried to say, "Can you please not wear that today?" To some people, and and it didn't work. You know, it's I've been handing out t-shirts and baseball caps and all sorts of stuff because I've got plenty of it as an activist. So I make sure that everyone's got plenty, and um, the union's selling t-shirts for ten bucks to make sure everyone's got plenty. So that's one symbol the way they're going for. But we've got we've had a calendar of um, action for the last month. The train horn was one thing. Yeah, they banned that because of the. Um, it's a, it's a safety device, and in some of the stabling yards in Sydney, like McDonald Town and Everly. They don't sound it because it's in close proximity to a lot of uh, high-density accommodation. But what they're allowed to do is if they if they go into a tunnel or a cutting, they have to sound it just in case there's some track yeah. workers or trespassers there. So, but they're doing it at every station as they take off. Or one night I saw one one driver hitting the horn constantly for about twenty <laughs> seconds, you know. And that you know that that drives the, the management up the wall too, which is good because you know they constantly drive. This is the one time we get a chance to fight back, you know, and get a decent wage rise. So there's, there's a whole heap of stuff that we can do. And today, me talking to you to the media, we're strictly forbidden under the code of conduct to do that. 
but because we put it down as a protected action, we're allowed to do it. So that's it's really good that I can actually talk to you and have a conversation with you about what's going on. Yeah, isn't it amazing, this business about... Um I mean, just as a matter of interest, you know, this business about uh, these rabble-rousers around anti-vaccination, I don't know what your opinion is on this, but uh, it's been pointed out that there is these fake unions that have been created, which are being created by LMP members. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, they keep, they're all talking about our freedoms, our freedoms, like they're, uh, you know, they're they're, uh, refugees from Trump's America or something. But you guys uh, have have written in your contracts that you are not allowed to tell anybody about what's going on in your workplace. Yeah, it's it's very frustrating that... As a unionist, you, you want to be able to counter what the corporate media says. And then the corporate media is always going to put a slant on everything. So you want to be able to have that say. And this is the one opportunity I've had. I've been working on the railways for 14 years, and I've never been able to speak to the media. I've been approached a couple of times on stations, and I said, I can't talk to you. Please contact the media unit, you know, um, because you know, journalists are always trying to get a comment of some incident or what's going on. And, but you can't because you're risking your employment then. So this is a great opportunity for working class people to have a voice. Yeah, what's the next stage in the uh, – what's the next development? Uh, well, I don't know. Actually, I've, I've got to contact the union on, on Tuesday to find out what the plan is because we only had a month calendar. Yep. But I, I suspect that they've got something up their sleeve. We had a con- – we had a, on Tuesday we had a four-hour stop work meeting and uh, we had a Zoom meeting that went for nearly two hours where we discussed what was going on. And um, Alex Clarsons is our state secretary, and he indicated that there'll be more um, action forthcoming because obviously the management didn't listen to us. And I suspect somewhere along the line we'll have a 24-hour stoppage. Okay. Um, but we don't, I don't know tactically when that's going to be, and I'm sure that um, I can't really divulge that because I don't want no, to no, 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 manage right. too much of a heads up. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, thanks for talking to us, and good luck. We'll watch it uh, with uh, a great deal of interest. Yeah, great. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been much, much appreciated. And now you can go back to sleep. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. This is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now.
That's the uh, Mernders uh, and uh, Boomerang, if you hadn't guessed. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got James Brennan on the line. G'day, James. Hey, How are you? Hey, everyone. Yeah. I'm great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason for why we're talking to you is because you're part of Renegade Activist and you're all about uh, rebuilding a movement in response to AUKUS. Yeah, so there, um, you know, probably a lot of listeners would have heard the um, AUKUS is the Australian-UK-US new military alliance that was announced by leaders of those countries um, you know, a couple of weeks ago now. Yes, that's right. And uh, I, I found, just interestingly enough, I was listening to a very interesting uh, podcast. This is a little bit on the left uh, uh a webinar on left field, but uh, it was actually about this new legislation called Identifying and... Um, uh, what are they called? What's it called? Um, identify and uh, anyway, it's it's, it's uh, it gives uh, the um, uh, the spies basically open slather into looking in, into people's uh, um, 
electronic communications and in fact it does things like allows people to put things on people's computers to prevent apparently uh, evil doing. But anyway, uh, it's... Uh, Quite an interesting well, yeah, thing, the, but but what know, I was going to get at was part of the orcas, yeah, you know, yeah. The no, what I, I was actually going to get at was that uh, it came up. The fact that Australia doesn't have a human rights charter means that we, we, we unlike the US and the UK or Europe, indeed, uh, we will get to do all the dirty work in any of this uh, uh, collaboration with the US and the UK. It would appear to me. Yeah, and I think that, you know, in any kind of military discussions, particularly between Australia and the US, the Pine Gap is really central to that. And, you know, the catch-all communications uh, agreement, which means that Pine Gap uh, is able to use its satellites to, to listen to our conversations and, you know, to use to spy on, you know, neighbouring countries or across, across this region, as well as playing its role in drone strikes, means that we are, you know, a significant player within the by and, and military, um, you know, playground. The uh, also the issue of uh, the incredibly undemocratic approach to making this agreement. It's not a treaty; it's an agreement. Yeah, well, it, it's possible that that may may change, but certainly at the moment, it, it's an agreement. And you know, the, the US and Australia obviously have the the alliance and a part of other um, agreements and things as well, but. I mean, I think in some ways it's been painted as something that was kind of rushed. You know, we, we saw, you know, some people were waiting the night before of the 7 a.m. announcement and, you know, I guess there was some concern about what that, what that may indeed be. But it, it, it's come out that really, you know, Morrison was in discussions with the U.S. in particular and, and the U.K. for over a year to, to bring out this negotiation. And I think we will see more and more of the kind of developments of what happens with that more troops in Darwin, uh, you know, Australia hosting permanent US bases. I think that it's going to be, yeah, the nuclear submarines obviously is a, a key component of it, but there's a lot more detail that is going to be fleshed out over the next little while. Also, uh, it, the um, UN Non-Proliferation Treaty is clearly um, under threat. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that Australia has re- refused to sign anyway. And, you know, I guess there's a there's a role here for activists to be talking about, you know, not just the, the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, but, you know, what's going to happen with the, the waste from um, the nuclear uh, reactors on the submarines? You know, where is the uranium going to come from? So, you know, I think there's a real, there's a key role there as well for workers and, and trade unions to be able to play a role in, you know, refusing to do some of the work and, you know, educating its members. You know, I note that the MUA, the ETU and the NTEU have already made a response to the announcement, um, you know, with concerns about some of the aspects that their workers may be involved in. And I think that, you know, that other unions could take a lead from that as well. It's, a, it's really quite sickening to think that uh, the fight has to be fought all over again, isn't it? It is, yeah, and I think that I guess there's multiple issues within that, not just, you know, peace and anti-militarist sort of um, issues, but the nuclear issue is one that never goes away in Australia. I guess part of that is having 40% of the world's uranium and a government that wants to build the economy on digging up minerals. So 
it is a it is a campaign that you know doesn't kind of go away. You know, Makiti, Jabaluka, these are things that are entrenched in in our history, and but there is you know a really long and proud history of um, Aboriginal communities uh, fighting back against you know uranium being taken out of the ground or or indeed stored, and you know a history of activists, unions, community groups standing alongside to launch that kind of fight back. Yeah, yeah, you can never, um, never. Uh... You can never take your finger off the pulse because the outcomes and the uh, potential fallout is so uh, severe, isn't it, uh, when it comes to nuclear? Everything becomes a, a far more uh, um, uh, what do you, critical. Yeah, and obviously with the um, submarines, you know, that was the kind of um, front page sort of uh, part of this deal. Uh, we were already uh, had an agreement to get um, submarines from France, and you know that's obviously upset them. This new deal that, that you know they were not nuclear-powered um, submarines, but they're certainly capable of being converted into that. So it seems like this has long been a plan of the Australian government and, and military to do that. And you know, like you're alluding to there, it's a slippery slope once that happens. Then going into you know nuclear power, nuclear weapons, and becoming a nuclear state. Well, the thing about it is that Australia is... Uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people are unaware of how embedded Australia's military and our so-called uh, national uh, defence is suborned by... as We're just really a suburb of America, and that we, uh, when they say jump, we say how high. I think that, you know, that is certainly true in a lot of aspects, but this, you know, watching the press conference that happened for this announcement, it was, you know, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison who spoke first. It, it was a deal that was seemed heavily in favour of Australia. It was, um, the press conference was announced at an Australian-friendly sort of media time. And, you know, there is a history of Australian leaders, you know, Billy Hughes, John Howard after September 11. You know, dragging Australia into military conflicts as well. So, I think you know we're constantly wanting to show to our neighbours that we're yes, we have a big body in the US to help us out, but also you know we want to be a dominant force and imperial force in this region as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was quite sick making to watch uh, Morrison say "our Pacific family." I found that so creepy. Yeah, if you look at some of the ways that we, you know, treat our neighbours, yeah. like Papua New Guinea and, you know, and Yeah, yeah. All of, I mean, there's not many friendly ones that we uh, we have a good relationship with and, you know, even probably our closest ally in the region, New Zealand, there's been pressure on New Zealand uh, leader there, Jacinda Ardern, to come out against the AUKUS agreement. You know, they've said that the submarines will be unable to go through New Zealand waters, but there's been pressure there to make a stronger statement against the deal there. Mm. Um, and are you implying that um, with that set-up uh, press conference that uh, and the positioning of Australia, uh, that in actual fact um, the uh, charm offensive almost uh, that the Americans are employing 
Uh, I mean, it's a house of cards that, in the sense that if, uh, you know, people they don't sell the story to Australia and that part of it doesn't work, then potentially the house of cards could fall. Well, from, you know, from the announcement, it was certainly a deal that was Australian-focused. It was about what was happening for Australia. You know, the US had not shared the... Um, details of nuclear submarines with any other nations except the UK, you know, around 50 years ago. So it was opening up a different part of the alliance to Australia there. But, I mean, I guess there are other details which we're not aware of. You know, what what else is Australia committed to with the US? You know, more troops um, stationed in Darwin, you know, permanent bases in that kind of area, which can be a launching pad to, to the rest of Asia, uh, you know, increased, there's been increased satellites built in Pine Gap over the last couple of years. So, you know, we're not kind of sure of what those kind of aspects of the deal are. We, I mean, we do know that there will be more troops. But I think, yeah, it is very much heavily um, bought upon by Australia. With But, you know, it's, it's an alliance that benefits all, all of the parties. Yeah, OK. So, um, but of course, you're part of Renov- Renegade Activists and uh, you're, you've called, uh, you want discussion and uh, action, don't you? Yeah, we've put together an event and you can go to renegadeactivists.org to find all the details and register there. And, um, you know, I heard an announcement um, just before on the show, so there's the details there that people can find out. It's happening next Thursday at 7pm on Zoom. And, you know, by having it online, it's a way that activists from across the country are able to gather together. And, you know, we've got speakers that are able to speak on some of the kind of different issues that we've touched on today. Because, you know, as we've kind of had in this discussion, it's a pretty broad uh, agreement and a lot of issues that kind of touch on there. But I think it's a really important time for the anti-nuclear, the peace movement to come together and to share an alliance that, you know, we have worked really well together in the past on these kind of issues and to really strengthen that, you know, broad appeal to say that there's a lot of people in Australia that uh, don't agree with this alliance and don't agree with the strategy of of militarising the country. Thanks for talking to us this morning, James. Thanks a lot. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyle Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activist on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the uh, uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners, who have had their uh, garden space uh, taken uh, uh, no, they've been locked out from it by the uh, Collingwood uh, Community uh, Farm uh, Management Committee, and uh, 
they've been fighting all the way, tooth and nail, to get their uh, community garden back. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they uh, presented a petition uh, with uh, many signatures in support of their uh, fight back. Uh, so this is a little excerpt from the uh, meeting that was held uh, after that actual petition was uh, um, given to the uh, uh, management committee and um, also uh, a little bit of a, um, a breakdown of what's going on at the moment. So welcome to the petition delivery event for the Collingwood Community Gardens. My name is Giles Filkey and I'm a Yarra resident and community gardener. Uh, it is briefly worth mentioning uh, straight away that our campaign uh, has meant that the Farms Committee of Management um, was held accountable for ensuring the gardens, uh, that they must remain community gardens for those of us living in the city of Yarra and that we cannot lose this green space. The campaigning by the gardeners has already achieved so much for the Yarra community, despite the continuing lockout by the farm. Initially, uh, the announcement uh, by the farm about the gardens um, made no uh, mention of the, the gardens being retained as they are. And today we've received a commitment from the committee of management that the gardens will remain uh, in what they've said is, uh, quote, a community food growing space. So I'd say that uh, they are still hesitating about uh, the, the community gardens, but we're definitely seeing a real um, uh, shifting of the position, the initial position of the, the farm and the way in which the farm has been communicating um, the, the lockdown and the closure of the gardens to us, the gardeners, and to the steering committee um, representing the gardeners, gardeners so far. We're still concerned, however, that the community of management of the uh, farm um, has plans to completely clear the site, which they've made um, statements about even um, a few days ago to us uh, in, in meetings with the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning um, and the representatives of um, the Crown Land Office. And there is no clear way forward, however, uh, with one plot renovation in particular um, that's already been carried out, costing upwards of $25,000. Um, and so that was the cost of one plot to be upgraded. It's now uh, sitting there full of weeds and is yet to be utilised by the social enterprise that it was upgraded for. And so I'd note that at that rate, 70 plots uh, that exist on the garden site would cost the farm upwards of $2 million to completely redevelop. So not only is this simply unnecessary, in um, our opinion, it's an unfathomable cost um, that the gardeners can't uh, quite understand. So this also disregards the heritage overlay of the site, which the gardeners uh, have rightly pointed out. And uh, a large amount of work has already been done into um, the significant history of the uh, community gardens, which have been there and have operated continuously since 1979. Um, so uh, this is all to say that so far we've forced the Farms Committee of Management to be publicly accountable and made clear that they cannot simply proceed without consultation with the gardeners and with the community. So furthermore, we note it's been nearly four months now and there are still no concrete plans forthcoming from the farm concerning a pathway to reopening the gardens. 
Um, I'd now like to ask uh, the gardeners' uh, representatives from the steering committee of the campaign, Tim Hanfield and Barry Hahn, to go through uh, the recent developments in more detail um, to present uh, where we're up to in the campaign and the negotiations with the committee of management. So um, thanks everyone for tuning in. I'd like to now hand over to uh, Tim and Barry for an update. Thanks, Giles. Tim, do you want to go first? Happy if you want to kick off. Um, I mean, it's a sorry saga and in some ways we haven't got a lot of progress to report, but we'll certainly step you all through what we have done and the goodwill and commitment of everyone that's on this call tonight and the wider community that have supported us. But happy if you want to start, Tim. First, I want to say a huge thanks to everyone that signed the petition and that Without this public campaign, I th I'm confident that site would be uh, a bare, you know, devastated looking bomb site because uh, that was the intention of the, uh, of the committee of management. Despite their recent statements, which have progressively softened it, so our position has remained uh, the same from the beginning. It is that uh, they should talk to the gardeners uh, to work out how to solve the safety issues. We have no, no, no rejection of the safety report. We acknowledge as a report, it needs to be addressed. Uh, we came up with a practical solution within a few days with support of Stephen Jolly, offer from the CFMEU. Uh, the safety report, in fact, had about seven items that if you look at them, condensed down to about three, which is just remove the laceration uh, risks, remove the impalement risks, and smooth and widen the paths. That is what the report said needed to be done to make the site safe. Now, almost four months later, uh, the farm has failed to do anything on that, but it has used it as an excuse to pursue their own agenda, which is really a fundamental change. And I think what we've got here is a culture clash. It's a clash between bureaucracy and community. So the community gardens represent 42 years of the Yarra's community growing food in an informal, relaxed, happy space. And what's come along is a bureaucracy which wants to impose its vision over that. And, uh, and to do so, it's necessary to destroy what is there. So that's the fundamental argument here. And it's all masked in lots of uh, words around accessibility and safety and so on. But what they're doing is they're using this at a they're proposing a state of perfection in terms of all these bureaucratic rules and the result is the exclusion of everyone from the use of the site. You know, the standard they're proposing far exceeds the, the farm itself. If they applied that to the farm, the farm would be shut down forever. And so here we are, four months later almost, uh, no, no time frame offered as to when we would get back in and they're doubling down on the idea that the only way to let us back in is to completely change the site. Now, they've softened the words. It's now refurbishment. Originally, it was clear the site with heavy machinery. That statement was made. It's a direct quote from Nina Collins, chairman, chairperson of the committee, I think she is, or the president of the committee, uh, when they made the announcement of the closure. She said they'd been advised the only way to solve these issues was to clear the site and it could only be done with heavy machinery. And they keep backtracking on all of these things and that's because of the public support that we've had showing the, the disingenuous nature of their communications. So we met with them within days of, this, of the closure 
we proposed a joint statement where they would jointly agree that we would address the safety issues immediately and we would engage in a consultation process with them about the future of the site. So we've never ruled out their vision of the site for the future, but what we've said is you cannot leave it unused for an indefinite period of time uh, you know, while that vision is, is carried out. And still in, in their response to the petition, and I encourage you to read it, it's all very vague. They talk about what they're going to do. It's going to be a community garden at some point. But, you know, right now it's a, it's a devastated site of weeds and it needs to be solved, right? So that's our position. Uh, we continue on. It's only through the support from the public community, uh, through the petitioners, through other public support, that we finally managed to get through to Lily D'Ambrosio's office. She, in turn, delegated resolution of this matter to DELP, Department of Environment, Water, Land, Water and Planning. And we have been in communication with a senior uh, DELP person who is facilitating meetings between us and the Committee of Management. So we've had two meetings so far. Uh, it's painfully slow process and the committee has been absolutely reluctant to make any concessions uh, whatsoever to their position. Uh, but we are encouraged by the uh, what appears to be a pretty genuine approach from this senior DELP staff member who's overseeing it. And he has said he is committed to have as many meetings as it takes to solve this matter. But we need to keep the pressure up and we need to keep pushing our case. And ultimately, the, the committee management needs to be seen for the, you know, the, the failure of their administration of this, this bit of land. Over, over a long period of time. I'd just perhaps make one brief comment. You talked about plots being cleared for $25,000. This was mentioned by Nina Collins when she announced the closure. And we've been able to piece together various bits of information. So we don't definitively know what has happened here, but our theory is that this could be the catalyst for this whole miserable exercise. So what happened was Angelo, who'd been one of the original plotters for 40-odd years, uh, went into aged care and gave up his plot. It was a double-sized plot, about 40 square metres. And then the next thing you know, in the farm's last year's annual report, that they had given that plot to two social enterprises, street and cultivating community. Now, if you look them up, you'll find their turnover combined is about $10 million a year, and they receive about $2 million of public funding. Why did they farm need to give two plots, which normally should have been allocated to community members, to these businesses? Well, apparently they needed them to train people. No doubt we, we speculate that this would be some sort of publicly funded training program, so there would be money coming in from that. Uh, $24,000 was paid, apparently, to cultivating communities to do the work as a contractor. Uh, it was also stated in Nina's original closure uh, speech that Cultivating Communities was the contractor that advised them of the need to clear the site. So if you put all these things together, what's happening is this is taking a public asset, a community garden, giving it to commercial enterprises, uh, which involving tens of thousands of dollars, amounts of money which would have totally resolved all of the safety issues, but apparently these enterprises stated they couldn't use the plots for their training exercise because the surrounds were too dangerous. So we believe this was the catalyst for the original safety report and everything flows from that. So we have to ask, 
40 square metres. The farm is, what, 16 hectares. Could they not find 40 square metres of garden plot for these partner organisations to do their training program and leave the gardeners to the community? It's just outrageous. On top of that, over the last couple of years, every time a plot has become vacant, instead of allocating the people who have, in good faith, put their names on the waiting list, what do they do? They've reserved them. They firstly said they'd reserve them for communal plots, but they never found a community to use them. So there's about six plots that are allocated communal have never been used. And at the time of the closure, 20% of the plots were held by the farm, not allocated to the community and not used. So this is a complete failure of management. And you know, this contrasts with their statements, which make out to be you know, extremely serious, responsible managers. Well, it, it's a nonsense. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Week solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when it's all in the name. See, you have a national get-together of Big Supremo, Scuttlebin, More Lash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the State Supremos, a, for want of a better word, meeting, which may, just may, criticise Scummo, for instance, over vaccination availability or non-availability or maybe the odd quarantine problem. But no, cleverly, you call it a cabinet and then declare its discussions and decisions and material are subject to cabinet confidentiality. And then an administrative appeals beak with obviously no knowledge of the law declares merely labelling something a cabinet does not make it so, creating more work for the government which then had to rush out legislation to declare it is a cabinet. Not that we are suggesting the government is secretive, but cabinet confidentiality is a sacred tenet of the Westminster system we also cherish, like the car park rorts affair and the sports rorts affair, which the respective departments and ministers tell us we unfortunately can't get access to the relevant spreadsheets and any other documents that just may assist those who suggest there were rorts because those rorts are subject to cabinet confidentiality. Achieved, we assume, by making sure there was some mention of it at some cabinet meeting, or perhaps you just say there was. Bit like a case at the moment in which the tax department is challenging the big four international accounting beeroths who claim their clients' details are subject to legal privilege, with some suggestion, hard as it is to believe, that they get some junior lawyer to do some incident unimportant work just to hide their clients' tax matters behind a cloak of secrecy. As if they'd do that. And what is the tax department carrying on about? We can be sure every one of those clients will tell us it is meeting our legal tax obligations. But sports rorts bring us to resurrected hayseed and sheepshit party intellectual heavyweight. At this point, we could name almost any of them, couldn't we? Heavyweight Bridget McConnell easily, who said her party's obligations were to fossils and farting cows, not to the affluent suburbs where I believe she happens to live. Nonetheless, her, oh, why does intellectual heavyweight come to mind again? Her supremo barnacle said he would support zero emissions by 2050, as long as it didn't affect coal and agriculture. <laughs> Let's say that again. Barnacle says he would support zero emissions by 2050, as long as it doesn't affect coal and agriculture. Oh, and he threw in manufacture and a few other things.
I know we've always had enormous respect for Barnacle's power of thought, but he's excelled himself. Scummo explained it beautifully in an interview with a US of Tele Network. It's one thing to have a commitment, but in True Blue Aussie, you're not taken seriously unless you've got a plan to achieve the commitment. And have you got a plan, we asked him. Well, uh, no. Uh, why not? You, you've had years to dredge one up. Why not? Why haven't we got a plan? Why haven't we... Matthew, he yelled at a subordinate, why haven't we got a plan? Ask Barnacle. Uh, thank you, that's it. Ask Barnacle. Just before we ask Barnacle, Scummo, does this mean you're not being taken seriously? Seriously, many long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, anti-true blue Aussies take not having a plan very seriously. That was obviously satire, because the real Scummo would have told us he has got a plan, but it is covered by cabinet confidentiality, and therefore he can't tell us what it is, and the people can take him very seriously for having a plan which he can't tell them. Whereas the Socialist Party, which has attacked the government for not having a plan, a very dangerous move disagreeing with the government, most definitely has a plan, which is to develop a plan sometime before something or other before the end of the planet, perhaps. Not that we need a plan when Scummo and Fossils Minister Angus Tailings assure us we are meeting and beating our commitments. Which, yeah, isn't that difficult when you're committed to doing as little as possible. And my word, they're meeting that commitment with flying colours. Meeting and beating as little as possible brilliantly. Can I just say, if they're going to have a battle between like and like, neo-fascists in mufti on one side and neo-fascists in uniform on the other, then I can't think of a more appropriate place than the shrine, a sacred place dedicated to train killing, slaughter and destruction. Can't understand what those who love a bit of train killing were complaining about, and the week that was is no orphan in pointing out that the rapidly increasing militarisation of the... Oh, sorry, the police, with things that look like an army tank, sinister space-age dress bulging with weaponry and now rubber bullets, we can be sure will be turned on rallies and protests challenging the greatest little economic order of them all. Notice the usual suspects, led by former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, backed by such minds as Lord Rupert of Wapping lackeys, including Bolt Through the Head, have supported the neo-fascists in mufti side of the battle and accused the neo-fascists in uniform side of violence against peaceful protesters who, Tiny told the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, were within their rights to protest against the evil Victorian socialists, likening the police to wartime soldiers, wartime soldiers. You had the Victorian police lined up like stormtroopers, eventually charging them with rubber bullets and tear gas. Rubber bullets and tear gas. Poor, sensitive Tiny was shocked, but isn't this encouraging now that Tiny and the Lord Rupert puppets, and likely the Institute of Public Very, Very Private, have seen the light, we can look forward to them defending us next time the coppers turn that military arsenal on us. And thanks, too, to the pejorative Dan Evil Socialist Government attacked by Tiny for giving the constabulary such carte blanche and such an arsenal of weaponry. We look forward to the rubber bullets. The day the Battle of the Shrine took place, the coppers had guaranteed us they would contain the mob and make sure they didn't run riot, and didn't that work a treat? 
on such matters, things military, during our interview with Scummo, he interrupted to put in a call to French big supremo Emmanuel Macron. Damn, the bloody message bank again. Emmanuel, it's me again. Scuttle them. You haven't answered my messages. Uh, did you get my messages? All, all 102 of them. Could you please give us a call back, please? Please? Uh, Silver play. Silver play. He seems to be ignoring you. No, no, I wouldn't say that. You must remember he's a very busy man. Uh, yes, yes, he has been busy making sure that truly was a European free trade agreement is torn up and telling the world your... Uh, what is the word for rat in French? Still, when it comes to things nuclear in the Pacific, France will always have a cherished legacy of radioactivity and be fondly remem remembered by Greenpeace and our New Zealand neighbours. And I see Indonesia and other people's business was critical of the nuclear sub-deal, telling us the Indo-Pacific way of dealing with these matters was discussion and respect for democracy and human rights, qualities no doubt celebrated in Timor-Leste and West Papua. Why is it, listener, that every time we hear Scummo or US of Big Supremo Joe or their new friend desperately looking for friends following his success with Brexit, Boris, talk about the ordered free Indo-Pacific ideal to which they aspire, it sounds like a call to arms, war talk, trillions on weapons of mass destruction because they so love peace, merchants of death rubbing their hands together, war is peace, exemplified whenever the Minister for Trained Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, opens his mouth, which unfortunately he won't keep shut. Real surprise this week, economic analysis from the US of... Uh, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world showing the 400 wealthiest families with wealth up to 160 billion U.S. dollars pay on average a tax rate of just when we thought they would be coming up with all sorts of dodges to avoid paying tax on average a tax rate of a massive 8%. No, seriously, admit it, we all thought they'd pay lots less than that. Of course, that being the average, then some would obviously be paying a lot less, but let's be clear, we could have no doubt they are meeting their legal tax obligations. At the other end of the wealth poverty scale, back here, big economic guru Josh Prydem Icebergs announced he would terminate government support for workers affected by COVID restrictions. This was, he said, to give them certainty. And to his credit, we'd have to agree the certainty of a bit of starvation in the comfortable gutter they move into, or into which, to be pedantically correct. As for corporate welfare, our old mate in us will cost the workers of the Trublowazi Industry Profits Group advised, we have to be careful how we come out of it. Are careful in us. Well, yes, we have to be careful that caring employers don't find themselves having to fork out for, having to pay their workers' salaries. In fairness, Josh said he hoped his contribution to poverty would encourage the state supremos to open up their economy sooner. Uh, but COVID is running riot, Josh. The state supremos have to sort out their priorities. It's the economy, stupid. 
not stupid, but bit of bad luck for those intellectual heavyweights we referred to. Poor Bridget, who, as we said, fingered affluent urban seats who don't understand we can't afford to address climate change if there is such a thing, naming big economic guru Josh Friedem iceberg seat specifically, probably because Josh said we should aim at zero emissions by sometime after the end of the planet. Thankfully, not because of climate change, if there is, but because not aiming would hurt the greatest little economic order, which in order must trump climate change if there is, and a panacea. Bad luck, as I say, because next day Bridget had to join Josh in offering workers that starvation and homelessness. Asked about this, Bridget said, goodness me, she certainly didn't mean Josh when she attacked attacked urban trendies. Uh, But you named his seat. No, no, obviously I was talking about the suburb. See? Intellectual heavyweight. Finally, if all that hasn't cheered us up enough, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony All-Being-Uzi, came up with a policy to benefit workers. He would create a $15 billion national reconstruction fund to help workers whom the Socialist Party so cares about, I hear. Well, no, to hand to caring employers, but only so they can create jobs for those workers. Got a feeling Anthony's policies aren't going to have caring employers shaking in their boots. Good morning. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland here. G'day, Don. How are you? Very good, thanks, Annie. G'day to you and to all of your listeners. Yeah. They're all safe and... uh... Uh, working their way through this very difficult uh, process of uh, uh, of the continued restrictions and so on, even though some of them are being lifted very gradually. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it, it, it is fairly arduous, but uh, uh, the issue that we wanted to talk about at the moment was uh, freedom, which has been put into a, a, a nice little... Um, a box with a ribbon on it, uh, an American Trumpish sort of ribbon, really, around um, anti-vaccination. But you've got other things you want to say about uh, freedom, don't you? Um, well, I think uh, it would be worthwhile following on from last week to uh, acknowledge that the situation we're in at the moment has put into the public sphere the opportunity for a deep discussion uh, a much deeper discussion about freedom than the individual, and th- these these period these moments in history are pretty rare, actually, where, if you like, um, philosophy uh, becomes public property. And uh, although you could argue that uh, there are all sorts of ways in which unconsciously uh, that's what's going on, of course, but freedom in the individual was at the sort of uh, those issues are at the forefront of. Uh, the thug violence, organised thug violence against uh, the CFMEU and the Melbourne, uh, the, the Melbourne the people of Melbourne in general, just uh, the week before last. So yeah, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about it, about the nature of freedom, and uh, and in relationship to that, the you know, the whole question of the individual. And one reason for that is that uh, I. I would suggest that the union movement is still struggling and the left has been struggling for some decades to get their hands heads around um, the uh, the whole question of uh, the individual and freedom of choice and so on, whereas the Liberal National Party and its think tanks 
and employer organisations have been very confident and on the offensive about um, uh, their definition holding sway in the community. Uh, so maybe uh, just to kick the whole question off, uh, uh, the big the big debate is that when when the anti-vaccinationers people and the uh, people who are against lockdowns because they are restrictions on freedom in adverted commas. The big question, of course, is, well, what, uh, you know, what is the freedom that they want to do? Now, it's pretty easy to uh, criticise and ridicule uh, the obvious freedom they want to be able to urinate, on, uh, urinate in public on uh, uh, public buildings and so on. And they do want to be able, the freedom to be able to attack citizens in their motor cars and health workers going about their desperately needed work. That's pretty easy to pull apart and realise that they, uh, you know, that that sort of buggery uh, can be defeated at that level. But the deeper question is, you know, if they're wanting freedom to go back to something, which is captured in this phrase, uh, you know, let's have a freedom day as soon as we can, or let's have a freedom march as soon as restrictions are lifted. And now even the government is invoking that concept that, you know, everything that the Morrison government is doing is about getting us back to restoring our freedom. It's also tied very tightly to, because they're so involved in um, public relations uh, massaging, very, very sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, Goebbels, Goebbels, I'll have to say. But uh, the Freedom March obviously is related to, you know, uh, um, black um, Americans fighting for their rights. state of freedom enable uh, the people in general to fight effectively and struggle effectively against racism? Will it enable them to uh, protest effectively against uh, those who wish to ignore what's going on with climate heating? Uh, yeah, October the 15th uh, is a national day of action for, sec- uh, for school students against climate change. Now, uh, in several states and other locations around the country, they're going to be deep street demonstrations. If any of them get really direct in terms of lifting the level of anger against corporations and governments who are too slow to make the necessary changes, uh, is there then freedom for the police uh, those that Kevin just described as the neo-fascists in uniform, is there freedom for them to uh, physically prevent the effectiveness of those protests? We could go on. Does it mean uh, the freedom to um, to scab, for example? Uh, unionists, when they engage in industrial action, in strike action, get very angry and justifiably with people who, uh, after a democratic decision of the majority to take the action, who don't do so. It's called scabbing. <laughs> are the champions of freedom 
amongst the anti-vaxxers and those who are opposed to restrictions, are they saying that there should be the freedom to refuse to join in a strike action that has been democratically decided upon? Of course they are. That's what they're saying. But it's ridiculous. And one can go on, is it a return to the freedom for people to bludge off those so that, you know, there's, what is it, 12% union density thereabouts, depending on the industry? Uh, those who uh, work alongside of unionists enjoy the same conditions of work that pay, including safety and so on, in which unionists and their union officials establish certain standards. Does this restoration of freedom mean that those people can just bludge, not pay any union dues, not participate in the meetings, but bludge nevertheless? Uh, so this is what they're talking about when they talk about freedom days. Or as someone else has pointed out, pointed out, Don, it's a freedom to uh, cause sickness in other people around them. And, and so it goes on, exactly. Uh, should, um, uh, should nurses uh, and other health professional registered nurses who are required to be vaccinated in order to go about their work and furthermore not to spread anti-scientific knowledge, should they be given the freedom to continue to do so? <laughs> the nurses are not even, you know, by overwhelming majority, nurses are not demanding that sort of freedom. But that is the freedom that the anti-vaxxers and the anti-restrictionists people, the anti-virus restrictionist people are, in fact, arguing for in practice. And above all, this is where they dovetail perfectly with what the employers really want out of this, which is the employer's right to exploit. And that is what employers ask for when they talk about employer rights in terms of things like the Fair <laughs> Work Act. That's what, that's, all of the changes that were brought into industrial relations laws since the early 90s has all about, been all about the rights being extended to employers to pursue higher rates of exploitation of the workforce. Is that the freedom that the anti-vaxxers and their champions uh, who desperately want to get back to normal, the, 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 the normal standards of freedom, that is in fact what they are asking to do. I mean, you know, this leads me to say, who are they working for? Well, sorry, ask that question again, please. I mean, this leads me to wonder, who are they working for? Well, I think it's... Uh, I don't think... And I think Kevin is right on to something when he talks about the relationship between neo-fascists and mufti, or plain clothes, ordinary street clothes, and those who are in uniform. Now, what we've seen so far is the invocation of heavy-duty police uh, methods to attack the anti-vax, anti-restriction protests, the violent thuggery, organised thuggery protests. Now, I think that um, at some point in time, it is entirely possible that those two forces can be brought together. Historically, in Australia, that is what has 
happened. That the plain clothes thuggery gets brought together with the uniform thuggery to prevent effective social protest, social demonstrations, industrial actions, and so on. And that is always to the great advantage of the most powerful employers, corporations, and so on. That 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 reconnecting. So instead of the police attacking the organised thuggery, there is potentially a point at which they come together. And the purpose of that is to entirely destroy the capacity of the ordinary population to combine together to pursue its demands for a better deal in the society. And I think that's potentially where we are heading in the next 12 months to three or four years. Now, mixed up with this is in this, you know, demand for a return to freedom is, of course, the whole question of the individual. And I think the left and the union movement in general is still struggling with this conceptually. So, for example, we have a prominent union leader saying, I've stated that I'm not against vaccination. I said I'm against the state government taking away people's right to choose for themselves. Now, there are variations in that statement in some union statements about mandatory vaccination. It's not quite as direct as that. But that formulation, that way of thinking is a misunderstanding of uh, the status of the individual in union activity. The employers and the LNP since the late 80s have, in a very heavy-duty way, promoted what they call the rights of the individual, which is, as I argue, is really a right for individual people to form themselves as an employer and be able to exploit others. And then that gets extended to the big employers. Now, that, and in, mixed up in that, is a freedom to choose whether or not you're in a union or not. So the, the freedom of association law gets redefined as a freedom of association or and freedom from association, which is a right to bludging. That's the legal right to bludge off of others in the society. So this whole thing at the end of it, I think the important way to understand this is the difference between individualism and individuality. In fact, they are polar opposites. The, the employer's demand to promote individualism, the rights of the individual, is all about self-centeredness, self-advancement, self-protection, self-love, all of those sorts of things, and selfishness above all. Individuality is something entirely different. That collective human activity through unions uh, and other forms of organisation, individuality is the capacity, each person's ability, unique ability to be themselves,
animals are developed their human capacity to constantly be in a process of development and improvement that they seek that expresses their unique personality. And the best protection for that is not individualism. That actually denies individuality. The best protection for that is combination, bringing together people so that they can pursue demands that enable the unique development of each person's unique capacities. So I think that uh, if we understand uh, political and union action and other social action as all about protecting and enhancing individuality, we are then striking a blow about self-centred and selfish individualism. Now, my experience is talking about individuality is a very helpful way to help workers get the disease of individualism, the rights of the individual, uh, the freedom of choice of the individual, out of their heads. Yeah. Uh, that well put, well put. We're, we've come to the end, but it's a, it's a. Uh, I'm I'm so glad you uh, you uh, were able to say that because uh, it's so clear that um, uh, this individualism and selfishness it, it, it puts individuals in danger. Exactly, individualism is actually a threat to each each person's. Future ongoing possibilities to develop their personalities, their unique capacities. Yeah, it's very dangerous stuff. Yes. Thanks for talking to me today, Don. We didn't even get on to conspiracies, perhaps another time. Yeah, there's plenty of time for that. <laughs> and I, I sought out the um, I sought out the uh, song that you uh, referenced, uh, "Freedom at Woodstock." So we'll end up the program with that. That's terrific. Thanks, mate. That was a fr- that was freedom being the absence of racism. Yeah. And slavery. I didn't even know th- Rich. What's his name, Richie? Richie Havens. I didn't even know Richie Havens was at Woodstock, which is fascinating because I looked at the uh, films, uh, the the clip that went with it, which was live footage of Woodstock, and it's really interesting because the entire audience is young white people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious, considering it's supposed to be about, you know, uh, the great flowering of American political uh, and self-awareness uh, uh, culture. Well, you know, I so suppose that's, that's who, 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 who are you talking about, white man? <laughs> exactly. And of course, the last performance at Woodstock, I think it was the last performance, was Jimi Hendrix's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, which is one of the great performances yeah. of political art wherever, you know, you, you could ever possibly see. And, of course, Jimmy was also um, a black musician. And yeah. um, uh, what a, you know, remarkable performance. And, uh, yes, it reinforces your point. There he was doing this remarkable uh, uh, remarkable performance uh, in the face of a white audience. Yeah. Overwhelmingly a white audience, yes. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Okay. Thanks, mate. Talk to you soon. We'll talk again soon. Bye for now. Uh, and that was Don Sutherland. And we are indeed at the end of the program. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And as I said, Freedom at Woodstock is going to uh, show us out the door.
guitar of Mike, please. Guitar Mike. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.